Hello again, everybody, and welcome back to another edition of Political Beats, presentation of National Review. Subscribe to our feed, new episodes, Mondays, through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn, plus right there at nationalreview.com. Click on podcasts, you'll find our new episodes and our back episodes as well, as well as all the podcasts that National Review has to offer. Uh, welcome in. Episode number 12, if you're keeping track at home, and why wouldn't you be? My name is Scott Bertram. You can find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. With me, as always, my co-host, Jeff Blair. He is at Esoteric CD on Twitter to find him. Jeff, welcome in. Hey, nice to be here. I am relaxed. I am on a mental journey. I am contemplating the cosmic vastness of the universe. I am in the right frame of mind for today's episode. And what, you might have the Wizard of Oz on in the background, too. Maybe. No. No. Okay. No. I, I, that, that, <laughs> that, that's never worked. I, that was always a bunch of hope, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, we uh, welcome into Political Beats our guest for today's episode. He is a, a writer, reporter for The Week for The Daily Beast and others, producer of the Fifth Column podcast, and writer-director of the award-winning indie feature film Sidewalk Traffic, a comedy drama about new fatherhood, depression, and holding on to your dreams and letting go of your baggage. Find that at iTunes, Amazon, YouTube, Google Play, and most major VOD platforms. And I believe that's Video On Demand, if I know my abbreviations. He is Anthony Fisher. Find him online on Twitter, at Anthony L. Fisher. Anthony, how are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for joining us here on Political Beats. And uh, before we get to your band, we ask you, as we ran down your bio there, What's your political beat? How do you fit into the old ecosystem? Well, I was uh, I was at Reason.com for a real long time as a, uh, both a documentary uh, reporter and a print reporter. Um, so I kind of lean on the libertarianish side of the spectrum, though um, I kind of avoid the labels. Uh, I'm pretty much motivated by civil liberties-related stories, but that could be anything from criminal justice stories, bad cop stories, drug war stories, free speech stories. Um, so that's where I am. I'm uh, pretty much, uh, if, if forced into a tribe, I'm in one of the rather smaller political <laughs> tribes. Uh, and as far as reporting, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot easier to have a uh, kind of a fire breathing bent to your reporting, but I just kind of keep play it, play it kind of straight and, uh, and uh, look out for the, uh, the civil liberties, uh, abuses uh, of anyone on the political spectrum. Uh, right, Anthony Fisher and uh, the band we discussed today, of course, on Political Beats, we talked to those who are reporting on, commenting on, or analyzing, or actually in politics, but not about anything political whatsoever. No issues, no bills, no fight about tax rates or health care. We talk about uh, favorite bands, favorite musical artists, what makes them great, and why you should care about them. And uh, today with Anthony Fisher and Jeff and, uh, and me, we, we will discuss an English rock band formed back in the 1960s. They uh, stretched through the 70s into the early 80s, a new incarnation as well in the late 80s, selling more than 250 million records worldwide. They have two of the best-selling albums of all time, including one that was on the charts for like, what, what like 2,422 weeks or something. I don't have the number in front of me. Uh, they are... Pink Floyd. And that is our band today. Anthony Fisher, we open the floor to you to start things off. What got you into Pink Floyd? Why are they one of your favorite bands? Why should people care about them? 
Well, I mean, I got into Pink Floyd uh, as a, I guess probably like a, the period going from grade school to junior high uh, is about when um, Delicate Sound of Thunder, which was the uh, a live album uh, of the first, you know, re- re- like basically the first post Roger Waters uh, Pink Floyd tour. And um, there was a video for Comfortably Numb uh, that showed uh, the kind of just the big stadium spectacle of the whole thing. And um, the song Comfortably Numb at the time, I remember like kind of going to my mother and saying, God, what a boring band. You know, this <laughs> is so, it, it's just, it's, it just goes on and on and on. Uh, and then I don't know, like something about the third or fourth time I watched this video on MTV, the solo, the, sec- the, the second Gilmore guitar solo, I got, I got it. I, I, I got what was going on there. You know your typical verse chorus verse kind of uh, pop music or pop rock music which is certainly what i was raised on as a child of the uh, late 80s and early 90s mm-hmm. um, but uh that 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 got me curious so then i got the wall like everybody else does and then you know did the basic stuff with dark side of the moon and wish you were here and and uh you know well before i i even considered a drug experience i was into the kind of spaciness of uh these really long suites, you know, that had, you know, some some beautiful harmonies between keyboardist Rick Wright and Dave Gilmore, the guitarist and main vocalist. Uh, and I also um, <laughs> I also uh, uh, started to to read about them and and, and uh, you know, like I, I was I would grab I would hang out at the back of Tower Records a lot, even as a as a junior high kid, and, mm-hmm. and read Mojo and these British you know magazines that would write a lot more about Pink Floyd's history than say a Rolling Stone would regularly. And so I got into the whole mythology of how most of their most popular period, most of the work was in, was kind of informed by Sid Barrett, who was the their like the, the the original leader, de facto leader of the group, the impresario, the you know pretty boy with who was a great guitarist and a really weird songwriter, and uh, how he just burnt out and faded away in, in in about a year's time, but like that the specter of him haunted the band even now that they were this you know monstrous you know all time great rock group. And uh, so I read more and more, and then I, I got this book by Nicholas Schaffner called Saucer Full of Secrets that is still to this day, even though uh, Schaffner died in like 1991, uh, it's still pretty much the the definitive biography of Pink Floyd. And I just thought the whole story was just so fascinating that this, this you know, huge, just absolutely huge, you know, name, even if you don't, even if you could, n- could not name a Pink Floyd record, people know the name Pink Floyd. They know it was a big group. Right. Um, just how, how weird this story was um, and, and how, you know, it, it went from this like crazy psychedelic thing to basically a, a, a really political, um, you know, and legal battle between two kind of upper middle class, you know, English gentrymen which is Roger Waters and David Gilmore who fought over the name Pink Floyd after their partnership dissolved. Um, and so just, I just, I don't know, the whole thing they, between the, the mystery of the, the, the name and, and the, how eclectic the music was, if you take it from 
uh, Piper the Gates of Dawn all the way to the present day. It, uh, it just, to me, it was just such a fascinating story of a, of a group that really didn't uh, fit into any one uh, box, not even not even psychedelia or prog rock. Mm-hmm. You know, they, I think people would, they, they would eschew those labels and, you know, a lot of elitists wouldn't too. I'm going to tell a story that is a little bit embarrassing, but I think probably it will stand in for the same kind of a story told by a lot of other people who are listening to this, this episode of the podcast. What was my first experience with Pink Floyd? Yes, indeed. It was the first time I ever got high. <laughs> I know, I know, but it is true. It was, uh, it was in ninth grade. Uh, it's uh, less ominous than it sounds. Uh, my parents had <laughs> gone out of town for a weekend, and my brother, who was like a year older than me, like a year ahead of me, was like, "All right, Jeff, I'm gonna get you high. <laughs> this is what brothers do." And so, yeah, I, you know, it was one of those comedies of errors. It took me like 17 tries because, you know, you know, you don't know how to smoke anything when you're that young, um, but it worked. And then he's like, "All right, now that you, now that you're feeling all right, Jeff, here's what we gotta do." We gotta listen to this song. You're supposed to listen to this song when you're high, man. And what did my brother put on? Well, obviously, he put on Comfortably Numb by Pink Floyd. And you know what? I'm not gonna lie. Ninth grade Jeff was kind of blown away by it. It was one of those moments where, you know, Gilmore goes into the guitar solo and it just like it's like the sun coming out from behind the clouds, and it's just like, wow. So from that moment on, I was like, under, I was twigged on to the fact that Pink Floyd was a hit band. And as I got into music throughout high school, I, I left behind that stuff, actually. I didn't really, wasn't really a drug user. You know, I didn't smoke a lot of marijuana in high school or anything like that. But I got into Pink Floyd because I understood at that point that they were one of the members of the classic rock canon. And they ended up, I ended up getting everything they ever did. Like, I would spend all my disposable income. Like, you know, I worked like summer jobs and things like that. And what did I spend it on? I spent it on things like that ridiculously overpriced and self indulgent shine on boxes. <laughs> you know, I, you know, I got like the obscure compilation albums, like a collection of great dance songs and works. I was a Pink Floyd completist. And I, you know, long before I got into so much more of the music that I think kind of defines where I am as, as a music lover to these days, I knew everything by Pink Floyd from Piper at the Gates of Dawn all the way up to like Pulse, which at that time was the last thing that they had done. Um, and so it's interesting for me to find out how much my opinions on Pink Floyd have shifted around from my high school years when I, I loved them and it was just understood that they were one of the all time great bands to the present day. Fact of the matter is, as we'll see when we go through this, I don't have a lot of time anymore for their so-called classic albums, everything from Dark Side of the Moon onto The Wall. And in fact, some of them, one of them in particular, I actively I hate, to be honest, at this point. Um, I would still say Wish You Were Here is a fantastic album. Uh, but the more I learned about Floyd and the more I developed into more of a, I developed more of an avant-garde sensibility and became a, more of a fan of post-punk and of dissonance and of oddness and of art rock for that matter, the more I realized that, that the part of Pink Floyd's legacy that I hung on to that really meant a lot to me was their early stuff, which is an interesting thing to say because when I say their early stuff, I don't mean the Sid Barrett years. I think Sid Barrett has a very mixed legacy with the band. I mean, obviously, as a tragic figure and as a motivator for what Floyd would do uh, as you know their career went on, he's 
has paramount importance. But I think the actual music he contributed to the band, some of it is incredibly good. Some of it is, I don't know, kind of self-indulgent. It's that mid-period from a saucer full of secrets to about obscured by clouds. And particularly, as I discovered it, the live recordings from that era, both at the BBC or live soundboards or BBC recordings, things that turned up on bootleg. There's, of course, an enormous, enormous bootleg community devoted to spreading uh, Pink Floyd concerts, particularly from that early era, because they were very creative. That is the era that I, that I ended up just being fascinated with. And it's, 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 it's an argument that I find that I don't know if I can rationally sell to other people, because a lot of this music is dissonant, it is self-indulgent, it is avant-garde improvisation. I can't imagine how blitzed out of their mind on drugs the performers <laughs> must have been when they were making it to say nothing of the audience members but I find it gripping and I still find it gripping to this day put on a good Pink Floyd concert from say 1970 and I will be transported for two hours and very little of it will involve lyrics there's none of the pop hooks or you know very catchy uh, you know highly produced programmatic sounds of, that you hear on albums like Dark Side of the Moon or The Wall but it's dreamy and it transports you to another world. And that's what I've loved about Pink Floyd. That's where I think they actually did something that, you know, despite the fact that their commercial success happened much later, that's where they did something that still stays with me to this day. And I'm ready for everyone to tell me that I'm a, a moron. About this. <laughs> um, well, let, let, go ahead, Anthony. I absolutely, I mean, I would, I, I totally feel where you're coming from and I uh, appreciate the point of view. I would absolutely not uh, push back on that as a, cause it, it, one thing is this clear to me is that like, you feel it, you know, you, you absolutely like you, um, the, the, the expression that they were putting forth and the, and the experimentation and, uh, you know, all the stuff that you're talking about, about the, the slick records, um, I, you, as you know, um, some people who may not be as Floyd completists as us may not know is that. Even stuff like Dark Side of the Moon, like, you know, the like literally the hi-fi album, the album that was produced within an inch of its life, everything about it is heavy, you know, slick production. That all came together through years of um, noodling live, you know, playing yeah. works in progress, you know, and songs that are some barely even recognizable, you know, from their earliest, uh, you know, incarnations to how it sounds on the record. So um, I think, you know, the, the one thing I, I, like I said, I wouldn't say you were wrong as, as, as somebody of, of the gospel of Floyd, I just kind of feel bad that you've lost uh, your flavor for a, a, a lot of the other stuff. But I'd like to get more into that uh, as we go. Maybe I'll reclaim it after we've done this show. In fact, <laughs> I kind of expect it. I'm gonna when we're done, I'm gonna go back and put on like "Wish You Were Here" and "Animals," and I'll bet you I'll discover how great they were all over again. <laughs> well, we can start at the uh, at the start, right? Uh, um, the the early singles, even before uh, "Piper at the Gates of Dawn," Arnold Lane, "CMLE Play." Uh, and, and ones like that. I, I'm going to actually cede this to one of you guys because I, I, I don't know all of these early singles. My, my entry point really is that first album. Well, let me just briefly give you the rundown. Yes, I do. And yes, I will try not to waste too much time nerding out over the progression. So the <laughs> the thing that people find impossible to believe, and, and, and one of the reasons why if you bought this recent kind of overpriced early years box set that Floyd released, uh, I think it was last year, um, is you know it's like a multi-CD retrospective of everything they did from like 1965 to 1972, right up until Dark Side, is that they actually do spend time on that first disc uh, showing Pink Floyd's roots as you would not believe this unless you had heard it. They used to be a blues rock band, mm -hmm. a really, really 
terrible blues rock band. <laughs> and that's where the name comes right. from. Right, exactly. Floyd it was, it was uh, who was it? It was uh, Pink, Pink, Pink Anderson and Floyd Council. Thank you, exactly. But here's the funny thing. If you hear those recordings, they suck. They really, <laughs> it's just so, it's so obvious that they are completely misplaced as a blues rock act. And yet, of course, they did it because what, the, what did you do when you formed a band in the mid-1960s in Great Britain? You played blues music. That's what everybody played. You know, you played, it's like the equivalent of playing a three-chord garage rock song if you're an American band in, like, say, the late 1970s. It was just what they had to do, and yet they were so comically out of place. You could hear Sid Barrett, like, trying to sing these blues songs, and it's, <laughs> it's, it's ridiculous. But they clearly realized that this is not what they were meant to do, and they started moving on into these more uh, so dreamy, and they hated the word, but I'm, we've got to use it because it's frankly accurate, psychedelic explorations primarily instrumental explorations and that's really what got them their first contract they made a big buzz on the local london scene playing at underground clubs like the ufo club and uh they ended up given a contract kind of a really bad contract to be honest but they got signed to a very good label which is emi so they got excellent producers and excellent engineers and that attention to high quality sound recording is something that would kind of go on to be their hallmark and you can hear it from the first record they ever released all the way to the end of their career they released a pop single because you know hey you got to try to get into the charts it's arnold lane it's a song about a cross-dressing shoplifter which is pretty transgressive then it's <laughs> still pretty transgressive even now um and then they recorded their first album and that first album was the only album they ever made while their original leader sid barrett was still somewhat in control of his faculties and certainly bringing a lot of songs to bear it's called piper at the gates of dawn and there's you know a lot of people who would argue that this is one of the greatest debut albums of any band of all time even though it's so radically different from everything else pink floyd would go on to do but i want to turn it over to anthony because i wonder what his opinion on that early barrett era is yeah well, i think pick it up there i mean um I, what was funny is like by the time I was in high school, you know, there was quite a few uh, friends I'd made who were hardcore Pink Floyd fans. But to them, uh, there really was even even scratching to metal. So the, the the previous album before Dark Side of the Moon, that was early stuff to them. Mm -hmm. uh, so when I when I played them Piper at the Gates of Dawn, they got violently angry. Uh, <laughs> they they were like, "This is like the, the Beatles, you know? What, what is this?" They, they, they didn't like the songs about gnomes and the I Ching. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, they were they were they were like, take the worst songs on Sgt. Pepper and make them even more, you know, bizarre and and very British, you know, like like Sid's uh, Sid's um, accent was pronounced. He made it part of his uh, he made it part of his singing voice, which. Um, at times, you know, you'd, you'd you'd find in the glam rock scene like this kind of affected nasally British accent would find its way uh, in in there. But um, it, was Piper, the, it was the Kinks and Pink Floyd who were really playing up their Britishness yeah. and yeah. singing, basically. <laughs> yeah. So Piper, the thing about Piper that is, even on that one album, there's like three or four crazily different kinds of styles. Yes. So that it, yes. you know, it start Astronomy Domine. Which to me is an absolutely seminal Floyd song, and and David Gilmour plays it on his solo tours to this day. It's awesome. Uh, is totally different than everything else on the album. It, like there's like a heavy drum thing happening. It's it's kind of sung in a chant. It, like, there's harm. Like, you can hear Rick Wright harmonizing with Sid, uh, and there's a, it's kind of like a chant like quality. And literally, he's just shouting off constellation names. There's no there's nothing about the song. Like there is no song there. 
but it's 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 a great you know kickoff. And so you expect, okay, it might be like they 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 might have like a little bit of a heavy sound that it's it's psychedelic, but maybe it's a little proto metal. And then the next song, it gets into that kind of um, I forgot which which is uh, Lucifer Sam. It's a song about a house cat. Yeah, yeah, but it's, but that's a, but that's another like kind of like throbbing like you know there's that great bass line, right? And then and and, and it's a great song, and I, and I actually I, I get it. I've I've seen it covered uh, a bunch of times like recently. In fact, I saw Sean Lennon's band cover it opening up for for Beck a few years ago. It was great. And then but then that's when that's when the songs get a little twee after that. That's when that's when they become about gnomes and the I Ching. <laughs> um, and but and then and then the middle of that is Interstellar Overdrive and Power Talkage. Um, Power Takic, less important than Interstellar, but both of them instrumental jams and Interstellar Overdrive, a, an absolute fixture of all Floyd shows, even after Sid left the band for several years uh, when they were trying to figure out their identity. Uh, and then a few more, you know, I think Scarecrow is there, and then the, 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 uh, the record closes with Bike, which is pretty much the, 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 the beginning of the end for Sid. Mm. Uh, it, it, it's, it's tremendous tremendous weird psychedelic classic craziness and at the very end of this song about you want to take a, you want to take a shot at trying to sing those lyrics because they're always <laughs> fun to do when you're drunk you know uh, yeah i'm not drunk enough but i mean uh, uh, the, the you know it's it's pretty basic you know i, I, I i've I, got a bike you can ride it if you like yes so but at the end though he, he invites this girl that he's singing to who he's inviting to ride his bike he invites her into his room of musical tunes and you hear like a sound effect of a door creaking, and then there's ten thousand clocks and cuckoo clocks and alarm clocks, and it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa! But what have we done here? You know, it's it's almost like the end of of, of Use Your Illusion when Axl Rose has that weird rap song at the end of uh, Guns N' Roses' Use Your Illusion too. It's, it's like, like My World or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, but but it's, but it's you know how it's like, what's going? Wow! And and, that, and clearly Axl lost it at that point. Sid's, <laughs> lo- Sid's losing it at this point, and you know, as you know, you could take take it from here, but like Saucer Full of Secrets is the next record. That's where David Gilmore is brought in as basically an extra guitarist because Sid can't play anymore, and they're kind of thinking about making him into a Brian Wilson figure who will right. write the songs in his sandbox but have no more of the touring life. But that wasn't even that wasn't even possible. And then, then you got yeah. Saucerful. So why don't you go for that? Yeah, Scott, what do you think? Yeah, real quickly on on the on the first album, Piper at the Gates of Dawn. The, uh, in, in terms of psychedelic rock, I am not the biggest fan. Uh, and I think listening back to this album, there are some things I like an awful lot and some things that uh, are like the worst parts of psychedelic rock that I don't want anything to do with. Um, you mentioned uh, Lucifer Sam, which is uh, a really good song. And, and Anthony had mentioned he's seen a lot of bands cover it. I saw uh, the Black Crows cover Lucifer Sam on, I think it was their 05 tour, which is one of the first times I really started digging uh, digging that song. Interstellar Overdrive, I actually sought out, there's a, uh, a great band from Ohio, was there no longer, uh, called the Ass Ponies, and they had a song called Astronaut, which is about a, uh, a woman on Earth who's, uh, who loves an astronaut uh, who she's never met, who is circling the Earth. Anyway, uh, one of the lyrics in there is Interstellar Overdrive playing on her phonograph, and so I had to go seek out and find out what Interstellar Overdrive was all about. Um, there's another tune, uh, Matilda Mother, which I, I like. It's one of the uh, songs. I don't know how many of them are, are, are like this. I think the verses are better than the than the chorus mm-hmm. in that particular tune. So um, you know, and then there are others that um, are, aren't quite reaching those highs for me on Piper at the Gates of Dawn. But as a as a document of you know the one full album that Sid Barrett is involved in the band, uh, it stands up all right. I think that 
Well, I just looked at my, my collection here, and I, I counted up quickly while Scott was talking the, the number of performances of Interstellar Overdrive, various live ones that I have. Uh, 27. I have 27 different live performances of Interstellar Overdrive, and that is merely between the years of 1967 and 1971. Mm-hmm. It tells you how much I like that song. <laughs> this is a song that literally, it, it basically is the Doctor Who theme song uh, <laughs> set to music, and then it goes into this incredibly long, spacey, psychedelic jam It takes you out into the deepest depths of – it really does. It actually takes you to the ends of the solar system, and I have to congratulate them. They came up with a sound that truly feels like, yeah, you know, you're not on planet Earth. You're out floating in the stars. back at the end and i could see why people would hate this kind of music i could see why people have want to have nothing to do with it but it appeals deeply to me i i find it to be the perfect kind of musical journey and adventure and and i like it when it's nine minutes long or nine and a half minutes long as it is on the album i like it when it's five minutes long as it is on like certain alternate takes or bbc performances and i like it when it's 20 minutes long i will listen to any version of it and it's obviously the best song on this album i think a lot of the sort of twee you know sid barrett written tunes on this record are are lesser i have never entirely bought into the myth of sid barrett as this you know incredible songwriting genius who was lost he wrote a couple of very clever songs i think the one that is truly the greatest is astronomy domine i think anthony was right about that that one is is is, there's a reason that pink floyd played it all the way up into the end of their career literally and like through you know until the 20 somethings and then dave dave gilmore still plays it i think that um Interstellar Overdrive is great. I think uh, Bike is pretty funny, although it's deeply weird. But then a lot of this era of Floyd I do find to be not to my tastes. I can recognize that other people like it. What I like far more than the album are the non-album singles, which oddly enough are actually quite usually dismissed by fans of the band and by the band themselves. There's a non-album single. It's kind of the last time that you know, they tried to pretend that Sid Barrett could be even remotely functional. Is after the release of um, Piper at the Gates of Dawn, they had a non-album single called See Emily Play, which is one of the most fantastic and perfectly emblematic psychedelic songs of the Summer of Love. See Emily Play is a song that has been covered by a hundred acts mm-hmm. since it came out. David Bowie did a version of it on pinups, for that matter. Um, again, you've got to give credit to Norm Smith, who was their early producer. He was like an old white guy, kind of like an old guy with a pipe, who, you know, and pipe and thick glasses, who people said, like, oh, you know, does he really get this kind of music? He may not have really gotten the music, but he did a fantastic job of making it sound beautiful. And then there's another one called Apples and Oranges. It's the last time Sid Barrett released a single. It's kind of shambolic, but it has some very beautiful moments. And the other thing I want to point out is that people don't understand how important another member of Pink Floyd was to the band during this era. And it's not Roger Waters. Roger Waters was an afterthought. 
in early Pink Floyd. There were two people who made major creative contributions to the first two years of Pink Floyd. One of them was Barrett, and the other one was Rick Wright. Mm -hmm. Rick Wright, who would later get tossed out of the band <laughs> for you know purported non-functionality by Roger Waters. In this early period, he was a great singer. He was a really solid keyboardist who provided that basically the bed of sound, the most reliable aspect of their sound, because I've never rated Nick Mason that highly as a drummer, to be honest. And he was a pretty good songwriter, too. He has a B-side on Apples and Oranges. It's a song called Paintbox. It's probably one of the best five or six songs Pink Floyd has ever released in its early 60s, its pre-Dark Side of the Moon career. And uh, it's a B-side. And then he came up with an A-side that everybody purports to hate right after it called It Would Be So Nice. I challenge Pink Floyd fans, I challenge people who have never heard this song, listen to that chorus, that pre-chorus into the chorus on It Would Be So Nice. Tell me it's not actually a gloriously beautiful piece of pop majesty. been dismissed over the years, I think for reasons that have far more to do with style than with actual quality. And of course that takes us to um, Saucer Full of Secrets, which is the follow-up, which is kind of half of it is outtakes from Piper at the Gates of Dawn. You've still got Sid Barrett kind of lurking there in the background. He plays on three of the, four, three of the songs. And then half of it is Dave Gilmore has been brought in. And a lot of people find this album to be weird and compromised. I think this is their best early record. I think that aside from one very unfortunate failure of a track, uh, which is Corporal Clegg, which is just a kazoo-induced disaster, <laughs> I think this is really creative, and it absolutely shone the light on where they would be going for the next several years of their career. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean... Um... It's a tough album. It's not the most listen listenable album, but I think the elements of it are all mostly great. Uh, Let There Be More Light, another song that starts out with that, you know, killer fast bass line. Yep. Remember a Day, um, I think it's a great Richard Wright song. And actually, after uh, Rick Wright died uh, about 10 years ago, I think uh, David Gilmore played on a British TV show like the next night and played Remember a Day, which to my knowledge is a song that they never played live, like ever. So I thought that was a nice tribute to a to a to a good song that he that that really like showed. It's a shame that Rick Wright didn't get more opportunities to be a lead songwriter. Like you know, he basically contributed like one track an album for a while until he wasn't contributing at all. They're often the best songs on those albums, as I will argue as we go forward. <laughs> Set the controls for the heart of the sun is another. Uh, you know, so, that, so that's like to me like the first great. That's the first time that Roger. Uh, kind of embraced the long, jammy, compositional thing uh, while also still, you know, the, the song is called Set the Controls for the Heart of the Sun. He's still at least giving a nod to the whole uh, space space act thing. And that was a big part of their live shows for many, many years after that. And there's a great version of it in the Live at Pompeii uh, video. And I agree with you, Corporal Clegg is a total mess. 
Uh, but the one thing to note there is that it's the it's this is the beginning now. Uh, every record will have a song about Roger's dad who died. Yes, <laughs> yes, this is, the, this is the beginning. Of the, yeah. you, the, the the seeds of Roger Waters yeah. taking over the band with his oh god, I hate war because of my dad trip. Yeah, Start here. Yeah, yeah. And it's a saucer full of secrets. I'm not crazy about on this album, but I love it when it's live. Uh, and I and, and to me, I love the uh, performance at Pompeii. And I know you're a big uh, Radiohead guy. To me, the the end when Gilmore is howling at the end, which you know the, the song, as I've heard them describe it, is is supposed to kind of it's it's an instrumental about war. Uh, right. So so you got the build up to the tension, the war, and then the requiem. And during the part that's the requiem, I guess they call it celestial voices here. Uh, on the on the Pompeii version and on many of the live versions I've seen, like that part reminds me so much of Radiohead's exit music for a phone. Yes. And, uh, and I, I, yeah, I do wonder if there's like a, a, you know, conscious or unconscious influence there. Seesaw is a really boring song, but there you go. Jug Band Blues, the last Sid Barrett contribution to the Pink Floyd canon. It's I think impossible it's a- to avoid the symbolism on this song. You want to talk about this? It's really, really depressing. What you, I mean, well, I, I just, I just think it's a great way to end the record and, uh, I think I think this song holds up. I've, I've heard this song covered a bunch of times too, but uh, I'm, I'm not quite sure what you're what you're getting at. So why don't you go for it? Well, I mean the lyric, man. I, I can't listen to the lyric to that song without feeling really creeped out. Oh, okay, all right, yeah. You yeah. know because it's it's awfully nice to think of you here for you to think of me here, but you know he's basically saying like I'm not here. Yeah. I may be here in body, but my mind is. is I don't know who's writing this gone. song. And I'm most obliged to you. He had, it, and this is the best of the songs that basically all the songs he did after this because he had two solo out. Basically, Rick, uh, Roger Waters and David Gilmore, because they felt so guilt ridden that their friend was clearly teetering towards irrevocable mental illness, uh, they basically propped him up in a studio and produced two records for him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and some of those songs actually work in some weird ways, they most of them don't, but they're all kind of building off of Jug Band Blues as him just singing about i am lost in my wilderness of mental illness right now i'm not i'm i'm not i'm not here anymore he had, he had, oh. he had they had two songs that they threw out called vegetable man and scream thy last scream because they, they were too messed up right too they, much. they, they too only much. finally released them with the box set because they were just they they were just too disturbing they didn't yeah. want to they, they they felt like they would be exploiting sid's reputation for being crazy if they released them up until that point and, and, I, and can you imagine all the stuff they did release and like how like, think about how much they they put out there and i mean jug band blues is bad enough or like dark globe <laughs> from the sid barrett album i mean oh, my lord yeah yeah how about you scott yeah, I like I like Piper a little better than uh, than the follow up. Um, you guys actually, I mean, you mentioned the, the highlights. I think you know the Waters tracks, uh, the uh, Let There Be More Light, and Set the Controls are both um, you know good early Waters tracks uh, as opposed to Corporal Clegg, which you guys po- pointed out. 
And I echo both of your admiration for uh, Richard Wright, both in terms of, as Jess mentioned, his early contributions, and there'll be a few songs we'll highlight uh, of his, his, his coming up. And as Anthony mentioned, uh, specifically Remember a Day, uh, I think is a, is a really strong Richard Wright track from from this particular album. It is difficult to listen to Jug Band Blues knowing the story and knowing what's, what's going to happen next and uh, and knowing how the band would continue while while Sid Barrett, of course, would not continue with the band. And, and uh, just reading reading some of the things that he would do, um, you know, get up on stage and, and, and not do a thing. Stand there, not sing, not play guitar, and stand there. Um, it's just, or, it's creepy or stuff. Or slowly just detune his guitar and remove all the yeah. strings. Um, so yeah, that, that's about where I am on that one. Yeah, before we go on to the next phase of Floyd's career, really the, the beginning of the new era, I just want to make one little note about that. Their last ever non-album single. Again, this stuff is almost entirely forgotten and unknown by casual fans, but it was a song called Point Me at the Sky. It was basically the moment at which they decided to give up and stop trying to be a singles act, which you know they did for the next several years. It's a song, it's called Point Me at the Sky. It is essentially a Gilmore Waters collaboration and uh again this is one of you know top five six seven songs in my entire pink floyd discography i love this song i love the chorus i love the hope on it it's you know hey gene this is henry mclean and i've created my beautiful flying machine and i'm leaving today and if you want to come with me and fly with me baby that'd be great and then it goes and that's Gilmore singing and then Roger Waters does his little squawky voiced thing and then it goes into this really powerful chorus I really don't know why it wasn't a hit, and I think the fact that it wasn't a hit and it made Floyd feel like they were stepping out of their comfort zone has a lot to do with the fact that it was uh, generally reviled. And when they ended up uh, releasing Relics, which is a pretty good compilation album uh, after Metal, which covered this early era, I thought it was very telling that they included the B-sides from all of those later post-C Emily Play singles, but not the A-sides. I feel like that's really unfair to how good those songs were. And I think Point Me in the Sky uh, in particular deserves to be more recognized. Um, but of course, that brings us to the beginning of the soundtrack era. Pink Floyd, <laughs> a famous soundtrack band. Apparently, they've written inadvertently soundtracks to movies they didn't even intend to, um, uh, as it was, we may discuss later on. But this this time, they were trying to do it. And I don't know if anybody out there listening has seen Barbara Schroeder's More. It's a really bad film, a really bad hippie film. Schroeder was this kind of you know sort of fashionable French quasi new wave director of the late 60s early 70s 
who I don't think the work holds up that well at all. This is a movie about heroin addicts on Ibiza. Uh, that sounds about as fun as it is, and it's really kind of a depressing movie. The music has a lot of those sort of inert problems. This is largely a lyricless album. Um, a lot of people don't really have much time for it. I can't rationally defend it, but it has at least two songs on it that I think are right up there with the finest of Pink Floyd's work. One of them is an instrumental called Main Theme. It's the main theme from Moore. Uh, it plays on the title track. It's really good. Uh, it's a very kind of powerful instrumental music. And the other one is one of the very few uh, lyrical songs on the record. And one of the songs that they would play regularly for the next several years, because they, they recognize the quality of this as well. It's called Cymbaline. And it's one of those songs when the first time I got the album and I heard it, I had that feeling of recognition where I was like, how do I know this? How do I know this song? I know I've never heard this song before, but I felt like I've known this song almost my entire life. If you listen to it yourself, you will get that same thrill of recognition, even if you've never heard it before. They're moving into range, and Dr. Strange is always changing beautiful verse chorus verse standard song but it's the first time roger waters was ever able to assemble an actually coherent pop song and it was really kind of important of what would come in the future yeah i uh, i i agree i think symbol is a great song and i think they did some great stuff with it live through the years after that and i don't want to spend too much time on more either we got plenty <laughs> to do but um i will i will give a nod to green is the color which is kind of a it's kind of a slight ballad uh, that uh, Roger wrote and Gilmore sang in, in. There's nothing really particularly special about it. I do think it's a pretty tune, and I think you're at, like at this point you're starting to see like where some of the songwriting would go and how Ro uh, Roger would write so songs that that only Gilmore could sing. That like they would just they just involved um, a, a, they, they to for them to work. They needed a prettier voice than Roger ever had. Um, and so I think that one's just like, like I said, just it's it's slight, but it's short, and I do think it's a pretty tune that's uh, that's worth noting. The question I have for you, Anthony, is Uma Gumma the worst double album ever released by a major <laughs> rock group? It's pretty bad, and it's pretty shocking. It's pretty shocking that this band, like, it's, think about like the music industry back then, that this band flailing and kicking. This is their fourth album, and they got to do a double album, half of which is just like total throwaway, like like literally like. Um, the you got the you got the live record and then you have a studio record. That's that's the double album, and the studio record. Each member of Pink Floyd gets their own um, composition. Right. That's a bad idea. You know. <laughs> At least Kiss right. gave everyone I mean, their own album. Period. Right. I mean, how many Pink Floyd yeah, I mean, fans means... honestly can ever say that they've listened to the <laughs> Nick Mason section of Uma Guma more than yeah. once, if even that? <laughs> but here's what I'll say though: the live stuff's great. And that cover, you're starting to see that. That's that's the the cover of Umaguma. If you if you're you know kids uh, check out on the online right now, it's uh it's the first of the um, Storm uh, Thorgerson 
uh, hypnosis uh, covers that really starts to get into that uh, Floyd mythology. And if, to my knowledge, it's the last one that they actually physically appeared on. Uh, and so yes. if you look at the yeah. picture, it's, yeah. a, it's a picture of them kind of D David Gilmore sitting kind of in the doorway of a country house and Roger behind him and Nick Mason standing behind him and the Rick Wright with his feet in the air in the back. And then there's a picture on the wall. That's that same picture, only it's Roger in the chair. And then infinity, infinity. It's it's great. It's just great. And it's the beginning of the hypnosis um, run of brilliant album covers for, for Pink Floyd. Now, I'm going to shock you. I'm going to shock all of you by saying this may be one of my two essential Pink Floyd albums. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Despite the fact that the studio part of this album is almost entirely garbage, the reason – by the way, Grandchester Meadows is kind of a mildly entertaining uh, Roger Waters kind of pastoral acoustic song. He would do several of these. Green is the Color is one of them. If from the next album would be one of them. Uh, that's okay. And I like Dave Gilmore's Narrow Way section. He doesn't like it, but I think it's kind of nice. It's at least pleasant to the ear. The reason I rate this – so highly despite the fact that fully half of it is garbage is because the live half of Umaguma is one of the most amazing incredible live albums I have ever heard I cannot I cannot recommend strongly enough for people who want to understand why do people like early Pink Floyd why do people care about it listen to the first disc of Umaguma it's four songs there was supposed to be a fifth which is they had a live version of Interstellar Overdrive that they dropped from it. But it's Astronomy Dominant. It's a B-side called Careful With That Axe, Eugene. Set the controls for The Heart of the Sun and The Saucer Full of Secrets. All of these songs are radically different than their studio versions. They're extended. They are brilliantly performed. They are endlessly rewarding. And honestly, when I think about what kind of Pink Floyd would I want to put on at any given moment, to just hear something of theirs that makes me feel good it is the first half of that they were fantastic live and here is the only officially released evidence <laughs> of it from this period scott i will uh, salvage one piece from the uh, the actual studio uh, uh part and that is uh going back to rick wright i think his sisyphus part two is very pretty very pretty piano playing uh on, on sisyphus part two and uh, as Jeff mentioned, the, the live stuff, uh, careful with that axe, Eugene, is a, a great, great version uh, of that song. And I, I also was trying to dig deep and see if there is a worse double album from a major band. And the only thing I could come up with on very short notice, uh, didn't the Red Hot Chili Peppers have a double album recently? My uh, God. Because I'm going no. to say that no matter uh, if, it, if, it, if that's true, that has to be the worst double album of all time. It just has to be. Yeah, by default, <laughs> All right. Now, the, here's the thing. These albums seem to be questionable and have questionable value in retrospect, but they were incredibly commercially successful in the United Kingdom because there seemed to be an actual appetite for avant-garde music in the early 70s and in the late 60s. They were even gaining a foothold in America. There's no better evidence of this than the fact that the next album they released is Adam Hartmother, which I can describe in one word. Dung. It is a terrible record, in my opinion, for the most part. There is one song on it that I actually think is a masterpiece, an amazing song. But I will get to that later because what needs to be pointed out is that the title track, this title suite called Adam Hartmother, takes up the entire first side. Yep. Sidelong songs is a big thing back in that era, the sort of the progressive kick for having these sidelong songs. Pink Floyd was there before most. You know, Yes would then do it with Close to the Edge, Jethro Tull with Thick as a Brick, Genesis with Supper's Ready, Soft Machine, I think, may have beaten everyone to the punch with uh, their uh, 
their uh, third album, and I think that's probably what gave Floyd the inspiration to go with this for Adam Hartmother. Adam Hartmother is an interesting opening musical theme that just turns into 22 minutes of pointless wank. And I can't even tell you it's the worst song on the album because I have to tell you there's something on this record called Alan's Psychedelic Breakfast. Yes. Holy Christ, is literally the sound of a man <laughs> eating their breakfast to elevator music. Somebody want to disagree with me on that? Anybody nope. want to disagree nope. with me on that? No. Nope. Nope. Number one. Number one in the UK, folks. <laughs> number one hit album. Eating breakfast on record. Explain that to me, and I will give you $10. I don't get it either. <laughs> this album is ridiculous. There's only one exception, and that is Summer 68. Never played live, never talked about. Again, you know, the true, supposedly true Pink Floyd fans don't like it. This is Rick Wright's solo contribution to this album. Summer 68 is one of the most beautiful Pink Floyd songs ever written. It is in my top five at the end of this show when we will pick it. It's about him, you know, having an experience with uh, and a groupie back in apparently summer of 1968 that left him feeling cold, empty, and unfulfilled. It's a beautiful piano ballad. It has these horns that come in. It has passion. It has a feeling of desperation and sadness. It has real emotion behind it, which is something you cannot say for anything else on this record. I like Summer 68, but I prefer the Brian Adams sequel, of course, Summer of 69. Uh, oh, which was God. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. Um, uh, you know, so, the 23-minute yeah. suite at the start um, just kind of blocks you from hearing anything else, I think. And it, it's it's really long, and it's not great. But I agree with uh, with Jeff. Summer 68 is a, a wonderful tune. It's got a flugelhorn solo, too. Uh, and even um, the, uh, the If a Song from Roger Waters is is, is probably one of the least known really good tracks from uh, from Pink Floyd and even David Gilmore's Fat Old Son I think is is worth listening to all that is really hard to get to if Pink Floyd's going to make you sit through uh the suite uh, as Jeff mentioned 23 minutes of bombast basically it's a tough listen uh but again yeah Summer 68 is a really fine track from this album yeah, so I love I actually love all three of the middle tracks on this album, If, which is Roger's song, Summer 68, which is Rick's song, and Fat Old Son, which is Dave's song. I think that uh, you really see, you know, it's 1970, it's the fifth album, you really see where, like, this band could have gone had all three of them really, like, you know, had the space to contribute songwriting. Um, there's, I, you know, I everything you guys said about those songs, I, I totally, you know, co-sign. I will add that, at the end of Fat Old Son, you get a Gilmore guitar solo, and this is kind of the first time that you've got a song that's packaged as a pop song. Like it's about four minutes long. It's got a verse, chorus, verse, and then it, you know, then there's, you know, Gilmore kicks off the, you know, the, the last two minutes of the song is a rousing um, 
Gilmore solo, and that's going to be a feature of Floyd work from the for the rest of the the tenure, like up until his time. That old son is one of those songs that I really do not like it at all on this record. But they played it live. It was it became a mainstay of their set for the next two years, and it is really rather remarkable when they play it live. I think Gilmore sings it with a lot more commitment. He sounds like he sounds like he's to be honest. He sounds like he's baked on the album. Version, you know? <laughs> Like you can't even use the, the vocals are so breathy, but when you hear live performances of the song, and there are several very good ones circulating out there, including one that was released on the box set, boy, it really comes across, and it becomes they they really pull the drama out of it of a lot more. So I will I will grant you that is also a really good song, but it didn't become one until they took it out on the road. And before we move on from from this one, I will say, uh, and, and I I would have totally agreed with everything you said about the uh, opening suite uh, up until I got the box set from last year, the early years box set, and saw video. There isn't even it it, it isn't even included on the CDs, but there's video, and it's not even for the full song. Um, but they're playing live somewhere in Europe. I think it was Copenhagen, and it's just the four members of the band. It's not the it's not Ron Giesen's orchestra or the singers who are chanting. It's it's just them playing this song, and it's really like heavy and scary and and a little Black Sabbathish. And um, it, it obviously, it didn't become a mainstay of their shows because I wasn't even aware of it at all that they played <laughs> it like this. But um, if you if you come across the DVDs on the on the early years box set, that particular one is worth checking out. I'm sad to admit how many versions of uh, Adam Hartmother I have live, <laughs> and it's been a trial for me to get through each and every one of them. But I do, I do my part. I do my duty for God and country. But if you think that's heavy, then maybe you might instead prefer to take a trip to Saint Tropez. How's that sound, Anthony? Oh, you want to talk? You want to talk about about Seamus, your dog? Uh, the, 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 the next, the next song on uh, the next album is a very light. Album of uh, of country blues and uh, you know sort of tropical numbers called metal. Actually, that's really not what it is. But you might get that misimpression if you looked only at the middle tracks on this album and not the first and the last. Mm -hmm. I've been talking too much, so I would like to let one of you guys take your get your take on this one first. Uh, I'll I'll jump in. This is uh, you know this is where. Things come together, right? It's a, it's a record where you can hear some progress, I, I think, of the band becoming what we think of as, as Pink Floyd kind of coming into focus. And that first track, uh, One of These Days, you just hear that band is tighter. Um, there's a double bass line from Waters and Gilmore that bounces uh, through the song. Uh, Mason's drum work is actually pretty darn decent on One of These Days, too. It's a really great track. Um Saint-Tropez, which, uh, which, which Jeff mentioned, that, that could pass for being on a Kinks album around the same era. This kind of jazzy gu- guitar flourish, uh, piano solo in there uh, from, from right? Some lyrics that are actual lyrics, right? Uh, that, that, that sound like they would come from a fully realized pop song. Uh, Saint-Tropez is a really nice tune. Echoes, uh, again, talking about the lyrics. I mean, they, they start to get into those concerns and topics with which Pink Floyd would be concerned with a, on Dark Side and on future albums, philosophical, moral concerns, um, and that's the tune. Echoes, uh, you know, the main like that descending riff was uh, kind of ripped off for the Phantom of the Opera. And Roger Waters never filed suit, though I think he's got a pretty good case. Hmm. It was kind of lifted straight from Echoes. So there are some real highlights on here, and I think real progress from the band, even that kind of that that airy 
uh, sound of the music that we think of when we think of Pink Floyd from the next era, that kind of came into focus here too. And there's more of a uniform tone to the album. It sounds like everything is supposed to fit together. It's it's the step forward toward what we would get to next. This album for me is about one song. And I hate to be that guy who has the contrarian hot take on every record, but I will be that guy who has the contrarian hot take on every record. One of these days, eh, it's okay. Echoes, eh, it's too darn long. You know what the best song on this record is? It's the one they never played live. It's Fearless. Fearless is one of the most amazing Pink Floyd songs ever recorded, and it's a very gentle, throbbing, self-assured David Gilmore ballad that has, of all things, football pitch chants <laughs> played in the background, and it ends with them singing You'll Never Walk Alone. But it has one of the most naggingly catchy riffs that underpins it. The dum 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 bom 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 That did thing. You, yeah. Did you, did you happen to see like just because, I'd only jump in because of this song? Uh, yeah. Did you did you see the movie um, Richard Linklater's uh, movie about the baseball players? It was called. Uh, uh, Everybody wants some from a couple of years ago. No, I haven't seen that. No, uh, they, so, so they, it's, they, it's, it's, song. it's kind of a it's kind of the spiritual heir to Dazed and Confused. Different characters, but it's basically like you know that week in high first week of college in 1980. Right. And there's a, there's a scene where uh, a one of the upperclassmen uh, who actually actually is Wyatt Russell, Kurt and Goldie's son, uh, and he's passing around a bong. They're playing metal on the record player. And he's doing exactly what you were doing right there. He's like showing you how the, this 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 thing builds up and how it becomes like an anthem. He, he literally, oh my there's god, a, he's there's, a decon, there's a deconstruction of this song in that movie. Uh, Everybody wants some. That's embarrassing. No, and I've never seen that film because if I had, I would be way too self-conscious to have just done what I did. <laughs> but yes, I think Fearless is is an absolute gem. And again, it's like the summer '68 of metal it's the one kind of song stuck in the middle never played live kind of forgotten but what a piece of genius I think, you know, I'll, I'll let someone else talk about Echoes. I think the theme is beautiful. I think the recapitulation at the end with the sort of titanic guitars is great. I think there's just too much damn whale noise in the middle. So, I mean, I, I love metal. I, I, I would I would rate metal as the kind of, because it, it's um, it's still a band in development and, it, and this is like literally the last moment before they will become such a commodity, uh, but uh, as Scott said, it does feel like a cohesive uh, album um, in that it sounds cohesive. Uh, and Saint-Tropez, uh, I think, is, is I would defend Saint-Tropez on the, on the merits that this is when uh, Roger starts getting really sarcastic in his uh, in his songwriting. You know, he, there's a line in that song, I'm drinking champagne like a good tycoon. <laughs> you know, he's, it's, it, that's when, you know, there's that bite that's starting to pop up. Uh, I agree that Fearless is the best song on this record and ab among the best in the Floyd canon, and it kills me that they don't play it live, and it kills me that David doesn't play it live in his shows now. He plays Fat Old Son. Uh, I, you know, that's older than this one. But um, 
uh, echoes. Uh, I will, I, and also, you know, just fun fact, uh, it's confessional. I, I lost my virginity to this record, to metal. Uh, <laughs> And uh, echoes. Hey, listen, I told my embarrassing yeah. story. You can tell yours. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, you know, the thing about echoes is, uh, I'm, I'm not going to say that I timed myself to it or anything, but uh, the, I do agree it's too long. The whale noises get a little tiresome. Um, but to me, the the harmonies between Gilmore and uh, Rick on this thing are just so sublime. They harmonize through the whole thing. Uh, whenever there's singing, it's the two of them singing together, and uh, I. If if they could have just trimmed down the the uh, the, the whale noises, I, I think that they could have come up, come up with something that might have been a little shorter than say "Shine on You Crazy Diamond," but something that you could play live and that you know even though it's long, you could you could sell to to Floyd newbies as this is the this is the sound you know this is this is these are beautiful lyrics this is great harmonizing when they're jamming out and they're actually playing music and it isn't just the whale noises I think it's it's among the the, the best that they were able to do um, and. I do think that for even for its length and faults, that uh, Echoes is, is a sublime uh, suite. to what should be the big triumph uh, right at the time that Echoes is being played live. Metal has come out. The band releases a new suite of songs. They start playing it. I think it's called A Piece for a Sword and Loonies. It will end up as a rather famous album, but no, wait, everyone stop. They get called in to do <laughs> another soundtrack um, and for another Barbe Schroeder film that is also not good called La Valle. Um, it's ended up as the Obscured by Clouds EP, and this is one that a lot of the like the really hardcore Pink Floyd fans insist is their most underrated record. I'm not going to lie. I've never quite felt that way. I think that I really like the opening two instrumentals, the Obscured by Clouds, When You're In Parent. Yep. I, I like that. I like What's the Deal. I think that's a really nice little acoustic Dave Gilmore thing. And then I like Rick Wright playing Stay. Again, yep. like, yeah. Rick Wright gets like that one torch song on it. But I think a lot of the other stuff, including the one that was probably the most well-known because it got airplay, is Roger Waters' is Free For, another song obsessing about his dad <laughs> dying in World War II. I don't like that song, and I don't like a lot of the other songs on this record. I think it's actually a, a kind of a weak sister relative to a lot of the other ones. And it certainly it gave you no indication of what they had been holding back for the next record. Anybody else have thoughts? I, uh, I love Childhood's End. I think Childhood's End is a, is a great Gilmore rocker. It would have been improved had Roger written the lyrics. Um, but it's, it's, it's Gilmore. Like, Gilmore was really, you know, Rick obviously was a great musician. But I think like Gilmore was like the real virtuoso, if anyone was, in the band. And um, this was him taking his blues background and mixing it with you know, the, uh, the sound that they had been evolving towards that was a little more, uh, it was psychedelic, but a little more modern and a little sleeker. Uh, and I think that's a great track. Um, and I, you know, I agree with uh, your take on what's of the deal, the first two instrumentals. I don't, I don't love this album. It's, it's a little, it's a soundtrack. So it's slap shot. It doesn't really have a, 
you know, a beginning, middle, and an end. But the the high points are just exciting. What's of the deal? Child's are then and the instrumentals and Rick Rick's song stay. These are these are high points, and it shows like how good they're getting. They're they're getting good. Take this opportunity to tell you're listening to Political Beats. You can find our feeds on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, or NationalReview.com. It is a presentation of National Review. I'm Scott Bertram. He's Jeff Blair. Our guest, Anthony Fisher. Find him on Twitter, at Anthony L. Fisher. Writer, reporter for the week, Daily Beast, and others. Producer of the Fifth Column podcast and writer, director of the award-winning indie feature film, Sidewalk Traffic. Comedy drama about new fatherhood, depression, and holding on to your dreams and letting go of your baggage. Find that at iTunes, Amazon, YouTube, Google Play, and most major VOD platforms. So our next step, guys, is uh, the album that uh, virtually everyone has heard virtually every song from, I would imagine. At least listen yeah, to this podcast. Yeah, it's Dark Side of the Moon. That's a great album. So moving on to Wish You Were Here. <laughs> uh, dark Side of the Moon. <laughs> what, do you, what do we say about this? I, what do you say that hasn't been said? Here, uh, here's what I'll say. I knew uh, On the Run before I even knew the album because uh, the Bulls, the Chicago Bulls of the, uh, of the 90s, would use On the Run to introduce the visiting team. And then, of course, would use Alan Parsons' uh, Eye in the Sky for the Bulls introduction, so you had uh, like a Pink Floyd sandwich since Alan Parsons was the engineer uh, on this album, uh, Dark Side of the Moon. Uh, I, I, I guess, I guess like, if, you know, we, it's Dark Side, it's great. Everybody knows about Dark Side. I will, I'll say I'm sick of money. I never need to hear money again. I, I felt that way for a really long on that. time. Yes, yes. I am uh, equally sick of money. And it's funny. It, it, we are doing a podcast on Pink Floyd, and we're downing on the, the most important album that they ever recorded. <laughs> but here's the funny thing. It's like everybody knows this record. I, I literally need to say Dark Side of the Moon to you, and all of a sudden you're hearing like the, the clocks and the grandfather clocks and the yeah. bells and the alarm clocks ringing, and you're just running through time in your head. And then all of a sudden, like cash registers, ching, and then you know you hear pounds of money bags falling to the floor, and it's like, Boom, bum, ba, boom, boom, boom. And you know money is playing. You know these songs. You've heard every single one of these songs on the radio. I will tell you this. The thing that impresses me most about Dark Side are the songs. And God, I keep coming back to this, but Rick Wright was such a force in this band, such an underappreciated force in this band. Because the, the two of the, I say, three songs that, that have not faded, despite the fact that Dark Side is, 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 is familiar to me as my own skin and my own fingerprints <laughs> the ones that i still want to hear are the great gig in the sky which is purely a yes. piano instrumental yeah. with claire tory just screaming her guts out over it beautiful sound she had a and songwriting is, credit eventually on that right didn't she get a songwriting credit eventually yes yeah, you know she did because rick wright made it a point to give her credit when when uh, wright decided like he was going to let a commercial use it mm -hmm. and he's like hey you know what i got a right to do this you know like you guys kicked me out of the band for god's sake <laughs> i wrote this song it's great and then i eventually she he, he said like you know what claire tory deserves credit on this as well because of the incredible contribution she made melodically with her vocals. Right. Oh, 
your demos of it, it's still the same keyboard sequence. The other one is another song that had been kicking around for Floyd for years. They played it live, not not only like you know in studio demos, but they've been playing it live since early 1970, and that is "Us and Them." "Us and Them" is the best song on "Dark Side of the Moon." It is the absolute fruit of the full collaboration between Rick Wright, Roger Waters, Dave Gilmore. They sing. They write the lyrics together. Gilmore again, you know, or rather Waters again gets that anti-war thing going on in the lyrics. And but you know what? It doesn't. It doesn't matter. It's actually a really powerful statement. And the harmonies that you have, I think it's Dick Perry playing this really warm saxophone solo that could sound cheesy, but it all comes back to those those incredibly beautiful recurring, repeating chord sequences that Wright plays on the piano. Those songs will never age for me. Never. I'm tired of money. I'm tired of time. I'm tired of breathe. I will never get tired of the great gig in the sky. I will never get tired of us and them. I'd, uh, I'd, I agree with that. And I'd like to add that uh, what I was saying before uh, about uh, the songs, the short songs from Adam Hartmother, this is really the last album where you've got all you know, Roger, uh, Dave Gilmore, and Rick Wright con- contributing heavily with the songwriting, each of them making musical contributions, and each of them singing lead on uh, on several songs. Gilmore gets a couple, Rick gets a couple. I, I think uh, Us and Them, you know, is back and forth. Uh, but here's the thing um, that, uh, this is another song that you might be sick of, wouldn't, you wouldn't blame me if you were, but I think is up there in my at least top five of best album kickers of all time and that's brain damage eclipse and i'm yes. going to, i'm going to call them one song yeah they yeah are. they are they're, no, no, that's fair enough yeah. one song yeah um so but the you, it, it, the 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 whole album you know at least the each side of the album plays into each other which was you know a thing and these the side two of you know the jam any color you like which is still a tremendously like pleasant fun kind of spacey jam it's the last time they would do anything kind of like that and then it goes right into brain damage and eclipse and that is some perfect Roger Waters songwriting. Um, the, you know, the the mystery of brain damage. Another song informed by uh, Sid Barrett. Uh, the all the moon imagery, howling at the moon, insanity, and then going into Eclipse, which is basically a list. You know that all that you touch, all that you feel, you know, all that you fight, and everyone, all that you slight, and everyone you fight. You know, it's it's just it's rousing. I'm even just talking about it. I got goosebumps. It's just one of the best. Uh, closing albums to, and uh, I mean closing tracks to an album that happens to be an all-time great album. Yeah, and by the way, I mean one of the things you really gotta say first of all this is famous this album is is quite literally considered one of the gold standards for like you know you want to test to see how hi-fi your sound system is you put on dark side of the moon alan parsons was engineering this is one of the great perfectly produced albums absolute hi-fi audio fidelity and it really all comes into focus i mean in perfect focus on eclipse where I, I love the backing vocals. You have the harmonies of the band. You have Gilmore, Wright, 
waters, you know, and all that is now and all that's to come and everything under the sun is in tune. And then you also have, I think it's Claire Torrey um, and the backing vocals, like going like wailing, soul wailing yeah. in the background. Yeah, you but they sound, they sound like they're over the horizon. <laughs> it's beautiful. They sound like they're singing, like they're in the audience listening to the band playing and they're adding on their own voices. And somehow the mix is so perfect that it brings it all together into just this perfect amalgamation. This is, uh, with great reason, has a reputation as one of the best produced albums ever made. And uh, it's really kind of the final, you know, payoff for, you know, Floyd signing with EMI and getting all these sort of, you know, guys wearing, you know, white jackets, you know, kind of buttoned down humorless producers in late 60s Britain. Um, but they cared about their craft and they cared about their art and it paid off not only this, but the, the albums that were to come because, my God, the attention to detail here is just so powerful. And it's one of the things that keeps this album fresh even after all these years. Which uh, brings us to the, uh, the the next album, Wish You Were Here from 1975. I really love this album. As much as I'm kind of burned out like Jeff on a number of the tracks on, on, uh, on Dark Side, these all still sound pretty fresh to me, even though a number of them are played on classic rock radio over and over again. Wish You Were Here, the song, probably is my favorite thing that Pink Floyd uh, has ever done. And it's one of those songs that slowly unfolds in front of you. How I wish, how I wish you were here. That, that 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 radio sound at the front and then doubling up on the uh, on the guitar line and it just it's it's a beautiful song you know an ode to, to Sid Barrett of course I love wish you were here have a cigar is great too uh, sung by Roy Harper uh, the hats off to Roy from the from the Zeppelin tune uh, it, uh, waters was sick or something something couldn't do it Roy Harper came in and, and sang the lyrics they kept them it's a slick funky track a lot of people have heard it of course and I know everybody rightfully praises the tremendous guitar solo Uncomfortably Numb. But I tell you what, Gilmore's solo on Have a Cigar is, you know, maybe 1A after Comfortably Numb. I, he just rips it up on the Have a Guitar uh, solo. And you've got the, the bookends of uh, one of the greatest songs Pink Floyd's done, too. Shut on you crazy diamond. Uh, half in front, half on the back. This is a really front-to-back tremendous album it probably as i mentioned is my favorite thing from pink floyd it's their best album and uh even i who who obviously has very obstreperously claimed to like the early era of pink floyd more than their later hit making period has to admit this this is their best album their best song may actually be yet to come their best single song but this is the best record because every single moment actually works it is a unified conceit it is a conceit that actually of course as we all understand points back to their early years shine on you crazy diamond is you know syd a, uh, an acronym for Sid. It's about Sid Barrett, who apparently showed up to the sessions during the recording here. Um, 
there is nothing on this album that is even less than interesting with the sole exception of I think the latter parts of Welcome to the Machine, which gets a little bit too much like it sort of prefigures Nine Inch Nails. We did an episode on them, but it's like Nine Inch Nails if they were boring. Um, <laughs> uh, Have a Cigar is amazing, and I, and, and I like that you singled that out, but Wish You Were Here, really, there's a reason the song, the title track to Wish You Were Here keeps coming back and has become so sort of pivotal in the Pink Floyd legend, and that's because it really, it, it, it's one of the most human moments on a band that could otherwise seem sort of, you know, distant, detached, and, and, and unable to relate to normal um, human emotion. That that is That is the song... And again, you know, you know, putting it into Gilmore's mouth is is the best decision they could have ever made. Um, there's a reason this album is so highly rated. It is Pink Floyd's best record, and I'm gonna just hand it over to you guys from there. I, I, I think it's I think it's pretty close to perfect all the way through. Um, it, it's the equal to Dark Side of the Moon in terms of production quality and and just how things build and layer. It's a great album to like. You know, if you're a teenager and you've got the black light and the and the you know no sunlight coming in, you really this is the best. Like you know, a lot, a lot of you know teenage drug use can be bad. It's sitting around and listening to "Wish You Were Here" with you know soft lighting is I recommend for every teenager. Right? Like you can let your imagination go. Let you know just just shut up and put your phone away and just for 45 minutes, you know you know get blazed and 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 kick back to 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 uh, "Wish You Were Here." Um, Shine on you, crazy diamond. Welcome to the Machine, like you said, it's like proto-industrial. I, I find it a little boring, but at the time, I, it definitely it, it had a trance-like quality. Like, the uh, the organs really, like, put you in a place. Uh, have a Cigar, if, if I remember correctly, it, Roger had trouble singing it, and Gilmore declined the assignment because hmm. he thought the lyrics were too complainy. I think he got a little burnt out <laughs> with Welcome to the Machine and Have a Cigar being Ro- Roger's anti-record industry rants. Uh, he, Boy, he must have been really pleased at what came next. Right. Well, I think perhaps uh, that inform you know, Roger's clearly, you know, somebody who's big on vengeance and holding a grudge, so fine. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to, you know, I agree with everything you guys have said about the song Wish You Were Here, and uh, I would just add that Shine On You Crazy Diamond obviously played live a, a million times and is great on the record, but um, also in the, in Gilmore's uh, solo career, he's uh, used it to great effect as kind of like a real stripped-down, uh, you know, acoustic thing, where mm-hmm. it, uh, you know, it, 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 it doesn't detract, like the song is still a great song. It's just much more intimate and sadder. It's because you, you, you really, it really feels like uh, more of a personal conversation with Sid rather than this big sweeping tribute to him. Right. So we move on to Animals, which is they took two years. They toured the album, Wish You Were Here. Then they came out with uh, the first of what would be many Roger Waters political polemics. Um, this is an album called Animals. Uh, there are some people who would argue this is their most underrated album. It's the only one that has not yet gotten a deluxe reissue. There are for a whole host of reasons that, and uh, in, including some conspiracy theories. I will say that Animals is an album that is defined positively by two songs. Um, Sheep is one of them. It's the sort of the concluding major song on the record. It's one of these things that starts as a little jazzy Rick Wright thing and then develops into a, a big, big Roger Waters rocker. 
pretty rousing. Uh, but the real highlight of this is, I would say, I've had to, you had to, I would edit it down. It's too damn long. It's 17 minutes long. There's, there, there's, <laughs> there, there's, there's literally an entire period where some guy just gets stone, stone, stone for like five minutes. <laughs> but the name of the song is Dogs, and it is perhaps the most creative, the most melodically and quarterly fascinating song Pink Floyd has ever recorded. If I had to name number one Pink Floyd song ever, it's Dogs. Dogs, even though I don't rate the album as highly as others would, uh, Dogs is, uh, you know, set aside the themes, just listen only to the music, and it is the height of compositional excellence. Yeah, Dogs is great. Gilmore's guitar work is is great. Uh, Roger has busted out both Dogs and Pigs for his most recent tour, which I saw, and um, I was thrilled to have actually seen two songs from Animals being performed. Uh, and I agree with you that uh, Sheep, particularly the end, the last three minutes of Sheep, where after Roger has announced that the dogs are dead, you know, the sheep have rebelled. That's a you know that's a great you know anthem that you know you you can just see more of the the themes there coming back in the wall. All the reason I've always loved this album is that it's the angriest album. It's so overtly angry, even though I'm not, you know, like like Roger specifically calls out a, a British uh, censor, like morality activist named Mary Whitehouse. He Mary calls Whitehouse. out by name in the song, you know, which is another thing that Axl Rose would do later on, uh, call out his, uh, you know, opponents by name. I think that kind of cheapens it. I think that's where, this is where Roger's poetry starts uh, fading a bit, mm -hmm. which is where he gets so much more overt in his politics. Uh, but I do think that, you know, musically and just the, the you know, pretty much giving, there's, it, there's long, you know, there's three long suites, lots of, you know, in, long instrumental periods, but there is nothing spacey about this stuff. This is like dystopia. This is, you know, like if if you got psychedelic, you know, in East London, right under the power station where that pig is flying, uh, this is what that would sound like. Political Beats, uh, Scott Bertram, Jeff Blair, Anthony Fisher with us this week talking about Pink Floyd. Find them online at Anthony L. Fisher on Twitter. Uh, and that moves us to uh, another gigantic album, uh, another album which people have heard uh, a ton of on classic rock radio, and of course when it was uh, released first, and that is The Wall. Uh, there's the movie out there as well, too, which was recorded uh, or filmed a couple of years after the fact. Um, here's what I you know, I went back and listened to The Wall again uh, for this podcast. And I guess what I would say is, um, you know the best parts of The Wall. I mean, The Wall's a double album. There's a ton of tracks. A lot of them are, you know, only a minute long or, uh, you know, a minute 30 kind of transitional tracks. But the best tracks on the album, you probably know them, uh, comfortably know them. Run Like Hell. Run Like Hell sonically is really great. Uh, how that song is assembled with the uh, with the pulsing bass line and the, and the guitar that, that brings you in and, and kind of lifts you right into it. 
you know, uh, Happiest Days and Another Brick in the Wall Part 2, of course. Uh, Young Lust. People people know probably the best stuff on this album, and I'm not sure they need to know the other stuff. That's just my, my, my takeaway from The Wall. My three favorite songs are none of the, um, you know, Comfortably Numb, I think, rises above everything, but um, my three favorite songs in this record, I don't believe you mentioned, um, I, would, I would count Mother, Goodbye Blue Sky, and Nobody Home as uh, three songs that really could have been on any other album, which is why I think they're, they're you know, that they, they kind of last, they, 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 they survive just the big, you know, rock opera conceit of this record. Um, Goodbye Blue Sky is a Gilmore written uh, track. That, that um, is a good one. Mother is we finally Roger's talking about his mother, not his father. Uh, <laughs> and, but but it's sung by Gilmore, great you know the you know a really haunting song where you know he gets into his anger and his frustration, but also you know appreciation for this his mother raising him without a father in post-war England. Uh, and nobody home to me is you know it's great because R- Roger's singing is really getting bad at this point, and he's not yes. even trying to hide it. And he's kind of doing a Randy Newman thing here, you know. He's, you know, and, and, it's and, apparently a commentary on Rick Wright. Yeah. Or yeah, absolutely. It was. You know, I got. A, I got a grand piano to prop up my mortal remains. Um, but you know, he's, if if you're taking it as the character Pink, which is the, the whole opera is supposed to be the character Pink Floyd, it's him falling apart. But yeah, obviously, it's a to jab at Rick. But um, those are my to me. Those are my uh, hot take favorite songs on the record. The Wall is a meticulously crafted painstakingly produced piece of (laughs) and I'm sorry to say that but I have thought this ever since I developed actual taste Um, I I will I will apologize for goodbye blue sky I will apologize for the happiest days of our lives segue into another brick in the wall part two I don't like that song but I like the segue I like the segue the segue Mm -hmm. is damn well executed I like Nobody Home, and I like Comfortably Numb. I like Run Like Hell. There are individual moments on this album, very tellingly moments where David Gilmore is far more involved yes, in yes. the actions mm-hmm. than Roger Waters. But this is the beginning of the end, and it's very I blasphemous to say this because this is, of course, one of the, the Pink Floyd's most famous and beloved albums. Number one, massive chart success. Everyone knows it. Everyone knows these songs. But my God, you can cut the the, the sort of self-regard with a sh- 
with a knife. You don't even need a knife. You could cut it with a spoon. You could cut it with your pinky finger. I'm sorry, Roger Waters, that it's so hard to be a rock star. It's really hard to be a rock star. I'm sorry that your dad died in World War II. Lots of people died in World War II. Most of them have managed to do a lot better with their lives than you seem to have emotionally. And so when we get to him, like, shooting up drugs, emotionally abusing people, shrieking about, like, you know, his unfaithful wife and all this stuff, you know, some of the musical moments there are reasonably compelling, but all in all, it feels like musical theater. If I wanted to listen to Les Mis, um, you know, <laughs> the, the the Broadway version of Les Mis, I'd listen to Les Mis, and at least I'd get a nice Tim Rice score. This is just, I don't know, it, it's, it's so well produced, it's so painstakingly bombastic, it feels less like rock and more like Broadway, and I know lots of other people are going to just beat me over the head for saying it but i hate this album i don't like it i like individual songs from it but i hate the concept and the spirit of this album i feel like it was really the beginning of the end for pink floyd and it points the way to what was the true be the true end of the line which is the final cut where <clears throat> roger waters says uh, you know basically fascistically i'm writing a song i'm writing an album rather an entire concept album about my dad about him dying in World War II and about the end of the post-war dream and about nuclear war and all the various left-wing socialist communist obsessions that he has had or had developed over you know, Pink Floyd's career. The final cut is an album that was well-reviewed in its time. I cannot defend it. I can't defend a single thing about it with the one exception of The Hero's Return. I like – or no, rather, The Gunner's Dream. Mm, I like yeah, that song. That's one. That song is good. Everything else, I would literally chuck into a waste bin. <laughs> Somebody tell me I'm wrong. I'm not going to tell you you're wrong. Uh, it's also worth noting that Roger's fascistic tendencies had gotten to the point where he fired Rick in the in the interim between the wall and the final cut, and the album is actually credited. Yes. The the, the final cut by Roger Waters, performed by Pink Floyd, and uh, the God, know, what a douchebag! <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I lost my train of thought. I don't want to spend any more time talking about the final cut. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm I'm on the same wavelength, and I will also kind of echo what Anthony had just mentioned on the wall, which is that Roger Waters' voice by this point is completely shot, and it's really hard to get through the tracks, especially because Gilmore is basically cut out of, out of the picture. He, I think he has one vocal on the final cut. The rest is Roger yeah. Waters, and it's just really well, difficult the, to get through the Fletcher I'm sorry but the, the Fletcher Memorial Home was what I was thinking of the Fletcher oh. Memorial Home in the Fletcher Memorial Home and and uh, Roger's father's name was Eric Fletcher Waters <laughs> Roger takes Ronald Reagan Menachem Begin yes. Al Haig yeah. you know like, like a whole bunch of people by name puts them in a gas chamber and turns it on oh, God. he literally does that in a song <laughs> Yeah, and by the way, the one song that Dave Gilmore sings on, it, it sucks. It, it's it's not, not, yeah. now John. not now, John. Yeah. It's, yeah. It, I feel like it's almost a cosmic joke that they gave him the song where like, <laughs> the Yabo sings. Like, oh, I just <laughs> want to get drunk and play my music and listen to my good times. And like, it was like a cruel joke that like <laughs> Roger Waters let Gilmore sing. Boy, man, you knew it. It was all falling apart right here. My God, the dysfunction at this at this point in the band was amazing. And of course, this is what happened: is that you know, Waters quit Pink Floyd, 
Waters foolishly assumed that that meant that Pink Floyd was dead. Mm -hmm. But what Waters didn't realize is that David Gilmour probably figured out that he would get a lot more money out of releasing uh, so uh, releasing an album that had Pink Floyd's name on it rather than releasing a Roger Waters solo album, which leads us to a momentary lapse of reason. Boy, this is some tough sledding these last few years. I don't have anything good to say about a momentary lapse. Anybody else want to try to like tell me that learning to fly is great? I don't say it's great. I think it's an okay, very polished 80s pop song. I do think On the Turning Away is a nice ballad, but I don't have much positive to say about this other than the fact that I do... I, I liked that Gilmore carried on and, and did, you know, it's a money thing. He, he recognized that he had built up Pink Floyd's name and not uh, Roger Waters' name. I mean, not, uh, but not, uh, he, he didn't, he built up Pink Floyd's name, not his own name. Yeah. Uh, but I don't have much to say positive about Momentary Lapse of Reason. And from what I, what I have read, I mean, it was almost as if Gilmore and, and the guys weren't going to carry on. And then Waters kind of got in the press and was saying, well, you know, those guys can't do it. They, you know, they, they could never make an album without me. And I guess contractually, uh, they had signed all these in, incarnations of the band. If someone left, that they would get this much money for the next album. And so there were there were incarnations of the band that did not have Roger Waters in it, which made the case for Gilmore to have control of the name that much easier. And, of course, they fought over the Flying Pig and who got control of that uh, <laughs> as well. The album itself, I don't have much to, to, to say about. I was actually looking more forward to The Division Bell when it came out and I was telling Jeff just before we started recording, I remember getting the division bell and listening to the division bell, 1994, and not liking it. And listening okay. again, uh, probably th you know three, four more times when it first came out, and not liking it, and not liking it. And I, and I listened to it again today, and I have to tell you, I still don't like it, uh, <laughs> pretty much at all. Uh, there are a couple highlights I, I, I like. Um, what do you want for me? Uh, which is early in the album, and uh, take it back, which I think was the first single off it, is is a decent tune. And there's one more. I'm not, I don't have the tip of my tongue. Pulls um, apart. Uh, yes, yes, pulls apart. The Uh, but like Keep Talking is horrendous. And that was actually released as a single from that album. There's a yeah. lot of just really bad stuff on uh, on uh, on Division Bell. And I don't like it any more today than I did, uh, what, 23 years ago. I was more forgiving to the Division Bell when I was like a 16-year-old teenager. You know, it had <laughs> recently come out than I am willing to be today. I listened to something like, I went back to it, of course, before the show. I listened to like, what do you want from me? Pulls apart. I like the songs. I like Marooned. I think Marooned may actually be my favorite song on the album. It's an instrumental. Um, Take It Back, High Hopes. These are nice and somewhat pleasing songs, but they're not really Pink Floyd songs. They sound sort of like, you know, you know, M.O.R. radio friendly stuff. They don't have the edge. They don't have the avant-garde thing. That's kind of the same problem that I had with the Momentary Lapse of Reason. I think it's a better record than Momentary Lapse, but is it Pink Floyd, you know, you know, per se? It doesn't feel like it to me. I will defend Division Bell. Uh, and uh, I, I liked it at the time uh, as kind of a, 
Well, certainly on the adult contemporary sounding side of things, definitely <laughs> much more low key and uh, downbeat. Uh, I do think Keep Talking is terrible. I hated Keep Talking even when it came out. Um, I, what Do You Want From Me doesn't do much for me. I think Pulls Apart is a great song. I think it's a it's a beautiful song. And um, I, I think Gilmore You don't think those thing. lyrics are just a little bit too on the nose? No, they're totally on the nose, as is Lost For Words. I think Lost For Words is a good song with really kind of corny lyrics, definitely talking about Roger Waters. Right. Uh, High Hopes, I think, is a is a song that I kind of got to be in the mood for. It can be a little boring, but it's got such a rousing pedal steel guitar solo, which is was a, a highlight of the Floyd shows in 94 and of every Gilmore show since. Take It Back, I think, is a good single. Wearing the Inside Out is basically Rick Wright's I'm Sorry I Was an Addict song, and it's not very good, it's sad to say. <laughs> um, a Great Day for Freedom's a little corny, you know, it's a, even, as, even as somebody who's obs- as obsessed with the Berlin Wall as I am. Um, it's so like yeah, they, it's pretty... they waited five years to do it. Like, guys, Jesus Jones got there a long time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I mean, so I, I still say I, I still I still enjoy it when I'm in a when I'm in kind of a feel good about feeling bad kind of mood. All right, Anthony, we're gonna get to the last album here before we go to our finale. Uh, any thoughts on Endless River? The posthumous Rick Wright has deceased. This is outtakes from Division Bell, Endless River. Anything that you want to say about? It? I just as somebody who's like again, if you're not a fan of the Division Bell, I can't imagine you'd be even the slightest bit interested in Endless <laughs> River. But as somebody who was a fan of the Division Bell, the fact that these were uh, you know built off of jams that were recorded during the same sessions certainly interested me. And some of it works, and some of it doesn't, even by those kind of low standards. And the one song that has lyrics is real bad. That's the song that closes the album. Um, with, yeah. with, 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 I think it kicks Rockin off with, rockin', oh my. It, it, it kicks off with, we bitch and we fight, diss each other on sight. The word diss should never be in a Pink Floyd song. And that's yeah, Polly Samson should stop writing words yeah. with Dave Gilmore. That so, yeah. louder than words is pretty bad. Yeah, yeah. That's that's all I got on Endless River. I'm glad it was released as a Pink Floyd completist. It's totally non-essential. <laughs> all right, we move into the final portion of Political Beats, where we ask uh, all involved to give two key albums everyone should own, five key songs everyone should hear. Through the catalog of Pink Floyd, we turn to our guest, Anthony Fisher. The floor is yours. Well, again, I'm going to have some fairly basic choices, but uh, I do feel that they're the the two essential albums, and they come right back to back from each other: Metal and Dark Side. That, now, the reason I picked those and not Wish You Were Here, even though I gave Wish You Were Here pretty much a perfect 100 score, is that they were really kind of solidified and heavy in their tone at that point, and I feel like Metal and Dark Side have a softer edge hmm. um, to them. That uh, that you know. You can you can go a lot of different directions with metal and, and dark side that you can't with wish you were here, which is, you know, so so somber when you get down to it. And uh, the five essential songs, uh, Astronomy Domine, off the first track, off the first record, for reasons I described. I would say if because uh, as somebody uh, in that book I just I, I mentioned put it, if is the real soul of Roger Waters without all that bloody political shouting his head off. I believe was the exact quote. Um, I think If is a beautiful song. I think that the, I, I, I like the chord progressions, and I really wish Roger had indulged that side of his creativity a little more during the Floyd uh, period. Echoes, for reasons I described, uh, just, just a, you know, great, long, sweet, emblematic, um, makes up half of metal. Great Gig in the Sky, mm. that's uh, one of my top five there. Um, the, there's, there literally are no lyrics other than Claire Torrey's wailing, and it's, uh, again, another top five song about death um i just i just it's it's so emotionally wrenching and beautiful and rousing i just it's great and that's my rick wright contribution (laughs) and final choice is uh dogs from animals which 
I think, uh, you know, you don't need if you if you make it through dogs, you make it through all 17 minutes of dogs, you can get all of the anger and the balance between Gilmore's composition and Rogers uh, concepts and lyrics that you get later on the wall. So you, if you don't if you don't want to deal with the, 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 you know, overbearingness of the wall, just do dogs. So. <laughs> uh, I will uh, give you again back to back albums, but one later Dark Side of the Moon. And and wish you were here is my uh, two albums that you should own. The uh, the five songs uh, stealing a bit of of, uh, of uh, Jeff's thunder, but I think Summer '68, uh, the Rick Wright tune, is definitely one you should you should seek out. I I, I like uh, Saint Tropez from uh, that album. I'll put that on the list. A great gig in the sky, echoing uh, Anthony. Tremendous track from Dark Side. Uh, wish you were here. The title track from the album, and um, you know if not if nothing else than but for the guitar solos, uh, comfortably numb from the wall make up my five jeff okay so i'm trying to come up with something that was fairly complimentary and a little bit weird uh so that if you get my two albums and my five songs you'll have a really good picture of what they did my first essential album and i know this is insane is umaguma and i <laughs> and because <laughs> listen the studio half is garbage or mostly garbage but it also gives you a sense of how weird they were willing to be and how many risks they were willing to take the live half is the most incredible bracing explanation of why this band mattered before dark side of the moon this is their core repertoire performed brilliantly it is amazing four songs there's a fifth song there that was not released interstellar overdrive hit me up on twitter if you want me to give you a copy of it i will do that all right the other one is wish you were here wish you were here is just you know it's wish you were here it's pretty much perfect from beginning to ending it's emotional there is actual real soul behind it it's roger waters uh, putting his sort of his his angst and his ennui into something that isn't just whining about politics it's one it's it's really feeling for the people that the band left behind and the casualties that they experienced along the way the music is superb um the title track and shine on you crazy diamond are basically they define late 70s pink floyd for my five songs interstellar overdrive that's the sid barrett era that actually is as good as Sid Barrett, Pink Floyd ever got, and I find it telling that it's an instrumental. He brought the craziness without the sort of twee lyrical conceits. Summer 68 is number two. Rick Wright is a guy who I really think was the secret mover behind this band before he seemed to have bowed out. Maybe it was under drug addiction or maybe it was under the pressure from Roger Waters. Summer 68 from Adam Hartmother is the one thing that redeems an otherwise irredeemable album. Fearless from um, metal is a magnificent david gilmore song just truly uh, again proving that the smaller spots on some of these albums that have epic numbers are really worth hearing us and them from dark side of the moon again a rick wright song but really this is a full collaboration with everyone in the band uh, Roger Waters, Dave Gilmore, everyone came together with this dick perry on saxophone it is sort of the purest essence of what Dark Side of the Moon is about.
and then finally dogs as uh, you know i couldn't really say much better than than uh, what anthony already said about dogs you know, the wall the anger the rage and the wall if you really want to kind of get what that was all about without having to absorb all of the boringness you just listen to dogs all 17 minutes of dogs off of animals and you will get it those are my five and there we are the political beats look at uh, the uh, career of pink floyd Thanks to our guest, Anthony Fisher. Find him on Twitter, at Anthony L. Fisher. Find his work at The Week, Daily Beast, and uh, producer of the Fifth Column podcast and writer-director of the award-winning indie feature film Sidewalk Traffic, which is available on iTunes, Amazon, YouTube, Google Play, and most major VOD platforms. Anthony, thank you so much for joining us here on the Political Beats podcast. This was a blast. Thanks so much, guys. Jeff, fun as always. We have a great you you, you had you had kind of uh, uh, gave a little away on Twitter this week. We have a great <laughs> a great lineup yes. coming up the next few weeks. Yes. Well, once we get to the Billy Joel episode, I will be a <laughs> hater extreme. That will do it for this edition of Political Beats. Thanks to Anthony Fisher for joining us uh, to talk a little Pink Floyd. Remember to uh, subscribe to iTunes, our feed, I should say, on iTunes. Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, new episodes on Mondays. Back episodes are there, also up on nationalreview.com. And uh, we'll do this whole thing again next week. When you listen and enjoy, also please leave a review as well. Helps new people find Political Beats. For Jeff and Anthony, I'm Scott Bertrand. This has been Political Beats. Political Beats.